Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDC. I'm here today with Dr. Herb Kropatkin, associate professor at Hunter College, to talk about aging with a progressive neurologic disease. Herb, welcome, and can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, first, thanks to the DDSIG for inviting me to come and speak. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. I've been a physical therapist for a very long time, since the 80s, actually, almost always a neurologic PT. And I've specialized in multiple sclerosis for, I would say, about the last 20 or so years, and also a strong interest in Parkinson's disease. Recently, I've also gotten very interested in issues associated with aging. This probably has to do with the fact that I seem to be aging quite a bit myself these days. And the fascinating and probably the most powerful thing for me has been that I've been covering MS patients for some patients for a very long time, 15, 20 years. And when I first started working with them, it was just the MS. Now that they're reaching their 50s and 60s, it's MS plus aging. Right. And this has really driven me to want to study this further because there really is very little clinical direction for therapists like us who mm-hmm. want to figure out what to do with these aging patients. 40 years ago, persons with MS did not survive in right. the 60s that frequently. And if they did, it was an institution. They were institutionalized. Right. Now, they're doing the same things they always did, but with better therapy and, of course, better medicine, they're with doing it with less of a burden of disability, but the issues associated with aging are superimposed upon the issues associated with the disease itself. Right. Okay. So I love this topic because you know I totally agree with what you're saying, and I think you're right. It's really a group that in the past maybe in rehab therapies, it's not something that we have had to deal with or not as many people. So like if you worked in home health or you worked in a rehab or a facility, then maybe you did. But, you know, now we're seeing more people in the outpatient setting that are aging or even people admitted to the hospital that have had MS for a long, long time but they're in the hospital for some other problem. And so we're having to deal with these things. And so let's just break it down a little bit because, you know, I think it's, it's valuable to talk about aging just in and of itself and sort of what layer that brings to these diseases. So let's just sort of quickly chat about aging and how that affects the body. Sure. When I think about aging, I think about it as a physical therapist. And that means I think about how does aging affect mobility? Mm-hmm. There's issues of loss of muscle bulk, sarcopenia, that are associated with aging. Mm-hmm. Issues, And with loss of muscle bulk, there's loss of muscle strength. That's superimposed on whatever muscle strength may have occurred in the disease. 
there's issues where the muscles themselves become less flexible, the deposition of non-contractile tissue within the muscles themselves. That might be superimposed upon muscle stiffness or spasticity. Mm-hmm. There's issues of osteoporosis and osteopenia. With the bones becoming more brittle, the consequences of a fall become much more dire. Mm-hmm. So what you're really seeing, once again, is not really just the issues of mobility that are involved in multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's, but it's really the combination of two diseases, if you will, the degenerative disease plus the changes associated with aging. And you can even make a case that there's a third. There's the interaction between the profile of the patient with the degenerative disease interacting with the mobility losses associated with aging. Right. And I think you can't always assume that it's just additive or easily accumulative. So it could be that somebody aging, that it's experiencing some of these changes, has changes in their mobility. But then when you add on this neurodegenerative disease, it's not like, oh, it's twice as worse. It might be four times as worse if we were able to quantify it, right? I think that's a great point. I think thinking of it as additive would be incorrect. I think interactive would Mm -hmm. be another thing. All the systems that might be affected by, say, multiple sclerosis could probably be just as affected by the aging process. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be a bit simplistic to think of it as just it's aging plus MS, but it's aging with MS. It's the interaction of the two conditions that leads the patients to their biggest issues. Right. And I think that I like your concept of almost looking at it like a third category. So you have aging, and then you have the disease process. But then when you combine those, it's really a third thing that you're looking at. Yeah. And a good example of that, I don't know if you're familiar with my research, but I'm very interested in the issues associated with fatigue in multiple sclerosis because fatigue, I think, is one of the main reasons why persons with MS cannot exercise at a great enough dosage to get the optimal response from an exercise program. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's true for Parkinson's as well. There's also a great deal of fatigue in Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. Well, but there's also a lot of fatigue in older adults, whether Mm -hmm. the fatigue is due to a wearing down of their parts or whether it's due simply to deconditioning and sedentarism, but you're going to have the fatigue of MS plus the fatigue associated with aging. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of other reasons too, like hormonal changes as we age and I'm sure it's multifactorial. Absolutely. And, um, you know, involves many body systems. Certainly. There's another thing. I just finished uh, teaching a course to my students in gerontology. I teach, um, give my shout out to Hunter College City University of New York, as long as I'm here. But I just taught a online summer course on gerontology. And one of the things that really came up a lot in our discussions was the concept of frailty. And frailty in older adults is a powerful concept. And it suggests that a certain trauma, a certain stress to their body, which may not have made a difference in their 20s or 30s or 40s, the identical stress, identical trauma can make a huge impact in their 60s or 70s or 80s. And when I read about that in the context of older adults, 
I thought this is certainly true for persons with MS and certainly for other neurologic conditions as well, that they can become frail as a result of their disease. Mm-hmm. And something, you know, walking, you know, a few extra blocks, a slight loss of balance, difficulty with sleeping and infection, something which if they didn't have the disease might not have had a big impact. Now, cause of the disease has a big impact. And I think the model of frailty for older adults probably applies quite, quite well mm-hmm. to persons with degenerative conditions. Right. It just makes them that much more susceptible. Yeah. To the problems. So as clinicians, I think we need to think, how can we reverse the cycle of frailty? Right. How can we make them more able to tolerate the stresses that occur day to day? It's not just a question of going straight to function, which is my normal go-to, but how can we simply make them sturdier so that the stresses that they would encounter over the course of a day would not lead them to poorer, poorer outcomes. Right. So before we sort of move on to intervention, I'd like to just ask a little bit about the research in this area. And is there much at all? There's very little research to date on older adults with degenerative conditions. Mm -hmm. I and my colleague Evan Cohn out of Rutgers recently were guest editors for the Topics in Geriatric Rehabilitation. And so there is a reasonable number of articles in that journal which talk about issues in aging for older adults with uh, degenerative conditions. The articles were very good, but they were predominantly observational studies. And as a clinician, I'm always looking more for saying, so what do I do? I know how these patients present. Okay? Mm-hmm. I'm not quite, I'd like to know more about what can I do to help these people. And right. But so, but my question is, what do we know, if anything, about the actual effect on mobility of people aging with these degenerative diseases? Like, do we know that people in their 70s with MS, you know, decline faster? than I know that people tend also at that time to transition from relapsing remitting to secondary progressive. So then that gets a little bit tricky. Um, But, you know, do we know anything sort of about the speed of progression and maybe that that information is just not there, but I think it would be interesting. There's there, it has a lot to do. Persons who have a relapsing remitting course are going to have less difficulty with aging than persons with progressive course, whether it's primary progressive or secondary progressive. Mm-hmm. The age of onset is something that been, that's been looked at, but it can be tricky. If it was someone who was relapsing, remitting for, say, the first 25, 30 years of the course of their disease, mm-hmm. and then they transferred and then they progressed to secondary progressive, it's hard to say whether the changes in their condition were due to the disease or to the fact that now they're 55, 60 years old. Another complicated thing is that quite often, although a person may get diagnosed in their 20s or 30s, that doesn't mean that's when they first contacted the disease. I've had many patients who told me that although they were diagnosed at 25 years old, they always remember being very clumsy as a child, 
having difficulty over the summer, being bad at sports, and the, the MS seemed to explain that. So we can make a few generalizations. We know, as I said before, patients with relapsing remitting are going to do better than those with progressive. Certainly those who have a background of fitness and health that seems to be more neuroprotective, patients who have exercised chronically Mm -hmm. on biopsies, their brain weights are greater than those who have been sedentary, that there's something neuroprotective about exercise. So I think that's a very important point. And this is in people with MS. That's correct. So, but if we're looking for something prescriptive, it's not there yet. It's research I would love to be doing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, a lot of research is on hold. Yeah, of course. You can't be bringing, you know, people, multitudes of older people into labs to do that stuff. All right. So let's talk, you know, then about intervention in these, in these folks and what is is it as therapists that we can be doing to help our patients age better? Sure. Well, for me, whether it's MS or Parkinson's, one of the first things I always look for in my evaluation is the presence of fatigue. Because that for me has always been the primary issue. Exercise is like medication. It's dose dependent. There's an optimal dose of exercise, of rehab that a patient should get. If they can't tolerate that optimal dose, then rehab is going to be less successful. Mm -hmm. Fatigue limits the ability of persons with degenerative disease, specifically MS, but really Parkinson's, stroke, spinal cord, all neurologic diseases deal consistently with fatigue. Right. You add on top of that the fatigue that's associated with aging, and once again, you get that interactive effect. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I try to get an idea from, or get them to describe their fatigue. Now, it's worth pointing out that fatigue, as so many other things in our field, is multifactorial and multidimensional. I like to divide fatigue into four ways. There's subjective feelings of fatigue, yeah. indicating that you're just feel tired, and there's objective fatigability, which is where my research mostly lies. And the typical example of that is a patient who goes for a six-minute walk, and their first minute is their fastest, and their second minute's a little slower, third minute's a little slower, fourth minute's a little slower, etc. It's Mm -hmm. a progressive worsening of muscular performance over time. So subjective fatigue, objective fatigue. There's also primary fatigue, fatigue that is due to some disease state within the organism itself. And that could be demyelination in MS or degradation of substantia nigra in Parkinson's disease. Or it can be secondary due to sedentarism. It is my very strong belief in my 30, I want to say how many years of being a PT, that a lot of the fatigue that we see is secondary. Right. I also believe a lot of the mobility loss that we see is secondary and not primary. It's learned. And that's good news for us because it means it can be unlearned with the correct interventions. Right, right. We can walk that back. So I just want to 
briefly say here that we spoke with Evan Cohen last year at about this time about the concept of fatigue and fatigability. And so for our listeners, if you want a little bit more of a deeper dive, go back to our archives and check out that episode. It was a super fun one with Evan. I'm going to put in a little bit of a plug. Dr. Cohen is a dear friend and colleague, and he and I are publishing a paper on fatigue and neurologic physical therapy in the journal Physical Therapy Reviews. And it's in review right now, but hopefully it'll be published very shortly. Oh, great. It's basically clinical reasoning for neurologic physical therapists in dealing with fatigue. It provides a clinical reasoning framework for if you see a patient who has fatigue, what are the steps you should take in evaluating it, assessing it, and treating it? Great. So that's a little something for us to keep our eyes out for, and and we'll definitely look for that as it comes out. So great. Okay, so fatigue is something that we want to combat in our interactions with our patients. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, you know something I didn't ask you, Herb? Please. Or do you have a clinical practice right now, or are you mostly teaching and doing research? Well, until I tore up my knee, I had a nice clinical practice. Mm-hmm. I used to have a private outpatient practice when my teaching and research responsibilities got so great, I had to cut back on that. But my practice is still open. It's mostly private home care and consulting But up until the time COVID hit, I was treating between 10 and 15 patients a week. Great. And it also makes my teaching and my research much more alive to me because I see the efficacy or sometimes the lack of efficacy in what I'm doing every day. Mm -hmm. So obviously between COVID and my injuries, not treating that much these days, but I'm still doing a certain amount of tele-rehab with my patients. Yeah, great. That's great. So how do you then work with your patients on overcoming fatigue, particularly that secondary fatigue that is reversible? Certainly. So the simplest thing is try to figure out what can we do to increase dosage. And this is something I've written about a lot, but I'm always glad to have the chance to talk about it more, is the simple idea of giving your patients the opportunity to take breaks. So, for example, if I want somebody to increase the distance that they walk, you know, it's important for them to be able to walk four or five or six blocks to get to work, to get to visit somebody, but their fatigue prevents them from doing that, and they simply cannot achieve that distance. Rather than simply telling them to walk continuously for as long as they can, I'll say try doing multiple repetitions of, say, one to two blocks. So. Walk for one or two blocks, then rest. Walk for one or two, then rest. That allows them to get a greater dosage. of Overall, right. And so that would be one way of doing it. The other way is to see what impairments are leading to their difficulty with achieving a great enough dosage of work. Is there a problem of flexibility that can be ameliorated? There almost always are, particularly in older adults with conditions There's almost always, in my opinion, some type of foot drop. There's almost always hip flexor tightness. There's almost always a lack of a strong hip extension push-off. There's almost always poor posture. Working on these things can make a pretty profound difference, sometimes almost immediately. Another thing I also very often see in older adults 
is inefficient use of respiratory muscles. Yeah. And it's not that they have obstructive uh, pulmonary disease. Again, it's just lack of use. They never let themselves get out of breath. So giving patients right away a respiratory muscle training program can often, but in a rather short period of time, improve their endurance because they're oxygenating their muscles better. Mm-hmm. Great. And so what else do you see in these patients as they're aging that you feel like you can address in a clinical setting? Sure. Well, as I said before, flexibility is a big problem. And I think it's really compounded when you mix aging and these diseases. If you consider the loss of flexibility that comes, say, as a result of spasticity in MS or rigidity in Parkinson's disease, you Mm -hmm. combine that with contractures from lack of muscle activity, and then you add to that the deposition of non-contractile tissue in the muscles that occurs with aging, where simply the energy cost of moving requires them to overcome the intrinsic stiffness in the muscle. And there are many things working against simply bringing a muscle through its normal range of motion during a task. So with my older patients, MSPD, or even if it's just plain old aging, I work a lot on flexibility. Mm -hmm. I work a lot on trying to get the muscle into its functional length and training them not just to do prolonged gentle stretches, but also to use that flexibility right away. For example, if I see a patient who has limited active dorsiflexion and limited active hip extension, I'll have them stretch that for a long long period of time gently, and then immediately get up and focus on, on heel strike and hip extension. So it's not just the working of that muscle or that joint in a vacuum, but following it up immediately with the actual functional movement that we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I do an enormous amount of stretching, particularly when there's stiffness that is interfering with their movement. Now, right. a lot of my patients are very, oh, for lack of a better word, confused about stretching. This, this is a conversation I have far too often. I'll say to a patient, I really think you need to stretch more. And they say, oh, no, Herb, I stretch a lot. I said, really, how much do you stretch? Oh, for about 30 seconds, three or four times a week. Yeah, and, right. and once again, this is the dosage problem. That's mm-hmm. not going to work. That's like, you know, saying, well, I have meningitis, so here's a half a baby aspirin. It's, it's the dosage is way too small. So I try to get them to change their notion of what stretching means. They mm-hmm. think, well, I'll do a stretch. You know, I really feel the stretch. It hurts. That means it's good. And really that's of clinically, as I'm sure our readers know, our listeners know, that's really of minimal, if any, use at all. So I try to change their notion of what stretching means rather than short and intense, long and gentle. Get the mm-hmm. muscle into a lengthened state and hang out there for five or 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. This could, for some patients, simply be lying prone with a pillow under their chest to stretch yeah. out their hip flexors, have them do that for five or 10 minutes a day. I'm a big believer in using night splints, not necessarily at night, but putting a simple night splint on and having them wear it for 15, 20 minutes at a time mm-hmm. while they're watching TV or eating dinner. And that not only takes away the work of having to stretch, but it gives them the prolonged gentle stretch. For some of the really older, weaker patients, I can't ask them to stand on an incline board for 15, 20 minutes a day. Right. I like this idea of the 
prolonged stretch with functional use right Mm -hmm. afterward. I think that's, you know, probably a lot of us do it sort of intuitively, but I think really planning out your session that way and then teaching your patients how to do that with their home program is um, key as well. So Herb, I'd like to just shift gears and talk for a moment about falls. Sure. And maybe some of the factors contributing to falls, you know, the, the parts of aging that make the falls even more likely in people with these neurodegenerative diseases. I'm glad you asked because it's a topic I feel very strongly about. I feel that most falls are preventable. And I feel that one of the main factors in falls is that over time, people, as their mobility becomes more difficult, they move less. Right. They take fewer chances, so their balance is never challenged. Right. That makes their balance worse, which makes them move less, which makes their balance worse, which makes them move less. So a typical example is a patient comes to see me or I go to see them, they're at over the last three or four months, an increase in falls. They tell me that they're so afraid of falling, they never get out of the chair. I'll do a bird balance scale or a mini best test on them, and their score is highly indicative of a high falls risk, say a bird in the mid 40s. Mm-hmm. Then I give them a program based on the findings from the bird, and all the program really is is telling them to start doing the things they stop doing. If they lose balance standing with their eyes closed, let's start practicing balance with your eyes closed. If -hmm. you lose balance with a narrow base of support, that's what you have to practice. And my patients almost always, not 100% of the time, but pretty darn close, will improve in their balance and their falls will decrease once they start doing these programs. Now, I think I'm a pretty good PT, but I know for sure I didn't cure their MS. Right. And I, what I did was I had them practice the things they stopped practicing themselves. Right. And very, there's this bad idea about aging in this country. I can't vouch for other countries that once you reach a certain age, you should start taking it easy and you know spend more time not doing stuff. And I think that is an absolutely terrible idea. Yes. I think that is going to absolutely lead to more falls, more illness, more injury, and more disability. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm aging myself and I'm starting to relate a little bit more to my patients. You know, I think after 50, you do need to challenge yourself. You need to like work at it, work at challenging yourself because it's pretty easy to say, oh, I could see myself, you know, slipping here and falling and breaking something and you hear, start hearing this stuff and it starts yeah. scaring you. And it, it makes sense that people are doing what they're doing. And I think you're right. I think we don't have enough examples, peer modeling, and enough of people in that age group going out and doing this stuff. And I think when you do see that happen, you know, when you get those groups of older people that are exercising together and being active together, it makes a difference. Arm, I think that's a really outstanding point. I think one thing we should do more of is look at the optimal agers, look at the people in their 80s and 90s who are doing you know, physically challenging things. These are the ones who don't fall because right. they're pushing themselves. Like many people during this COVID period, I'm spending a lot more time on YouTube and my current interest is looking at master's track and field races 
looking at these people in their 70s and 80s running quarter mile sprints and half mile sprints, and they look spectacular. And when they're interviewed afterwards, they said, well, I just never stopped running. Right. So here's another anecdote I'd like to give, which is helpful. I, I'd like to refine the article, but it was an interview with a gerontologist in the New York Times many years ago. And the interviewer was asking the gerontologist, what is the most important factor for successful aging? And the gerontologist hemmed and hawed a little bit for a while, said things like, well, environment and genetics, et cetera, et cetera. But finally, she said something along these lines, and I'm going to misquote it a little bit, but the impact is the same. She says it all comes down to what she calls the yuck factor, meaning you have to push yourself to an uncomfortable place. Mm-hmm. You want to get out of your comfort zone. And so I push my patients, whether they're older adults with MS or not, I push them outside of their comfort zone. And by and large, they really like it. And I think it goes well beyond exercise. I think you have to push yourself. Successful aging means pushing yourself intellectually. It means pushing yourself emotionally, spiritually, but not getting too comfortable. I think Comfort, although comfort is always nice, I think when you're looking for the factors of successful agers, these are the people who chose to not start taking things easy once they hit 60 years old, but instead pushed very, very hard. Right. An example I'd like to give of that, my grandfather, who stayed very sharp into his late 90s, at 90 years old, he decided to teach himself Chinese. Oh, that's awesome. It, it didn't go that well, but, right. but, but, but I think it was the struggle right. that really what was important. And I think mm-hmm. that's really an important message for not just our older adults, but particularly our older adults with, who are dealing with this interactive effects of a degenerative condition. Right. And I think, you know, that when people see it in, in their peers, which is why I think we've talked a lot on this podcast about group exercise. And it's one reason that I think group exercise is great, but part of it is that you get to know people and you know what they're doing and you get to see what they're doing and hear what they're doing. I think it, it does, it makes a big difference when people can continue to, to push themselves and they see other people pushing themselves. So that kind of, you know, eggs them on or they do it together, or whatever. So, yeah, I, I love that too. You know, one of the things, you know, when I work with patients that strikes me about aging is that oftentimes we kind of forget about the importance of the vestibular system in balance. And I find that if you focus just even just a little bit with people on activating that vestibular system, sometimes you can get some really huge bang for your buck. So so I really like to include head turning activities with people, you know, that's challenging, but doable for them. And, and I've noticed that to make a big difference. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think not all therapists who work either with uh, degenerative diseases or older adults will think immediately to test the vestibular system. And anytime there is an issue with mobility or balance, I think the vestibular system should always be investigated, even if you're doing simple VOR testing. Mm-hmm with older adults in different positions, or seeing if head turning or rapid eye movements can impact balance. 
We do know that in older adults, there's changes in the physiology of the semicircular canals and mm -hmm. the otoliths. We know that there's dropout of cells in the cerebellum and the pons. Mm -hmm. And there's also probably, not to keep harping on this, there's also probably a lot of disuse that occurs. Right. The yeah. vestibular, you know, they're not moving around as much. They're not moving their head as much. They're right. involved in profound voluntary movement activity restriction. Right. So the vestibular system is simply not activated. And even just as adults, I mean, we're not doing cartwheels and somersaults like our kids are. And I remember uh, I was walking when my kids were in elementary school, we were walking in the parking lot and, you know, the little concrete things that you drive your car up to, to at the top of the spot there. They were walking on it and jumping to the next one and walking on it. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Why aren't I doing that? You know, like I should be playing alongside them to keep myself young and, and moving that way. And so that's, that's a fair point. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a great point is I think a lot of that vestibular stuff is disuse. And then also, of course, with people with MS that they can have some vestibular impairment that is going to affect their balance, but then adding the aging piece on top of that, you know, makes that again, even yeah. more of a issue for them. It certainly happens, can happen a great deal in older adults. Right. Um, there's probably, in my opinion, a lot of undiagnosed BPPV in older adults. The incidence of BPPV in persons with MS is higher than in the general population. And mm. this is something that I think should be in every PT's toolkit, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think really, you know, teasing out like what's going on with the vestibular system and then how can we address it? Because I think that that can be really, really helpful for treating people and increasing their confidence with mobility. You know, if they're, yes. if they know they're working on something and they're doing something that's hard and you know so cervical range of motion in conjunction with vestibular exercises i think can be super helpful well again i think that's a great point cervical range of motion tends to be very limited in, in older adults mm -hmm. particularly in extension and then rotation and you have to wonder as their head moves less up and down and side to side is that going to put their vestibular system to sleep a little bit because they're simply not utilizing rapid head movements. They're, right. tur they're turning their whole bodies instead. Mm -hmm. So combining uh, cervical range of motion with vestibular training should be something that could be used for any adult who seems to, older adult who seems to be having difficulty with mobility and balance. I totally agree. So Herb, is there anything major that we haven't touched upon in terms of areas to consider when thinking about aging and neurodegenerative disease? Ooh, anything major? Um, yeah. How many days you got? Um, <laughs> I know we could go on forever because it's, uh, there's a lot and it's interesting. Well, let, let me just say a few things. First, I think it's really worth talking about nutrition mm -hmm. in so many patients who I'm seeing older adults with and without degenerative diseases are usually massively dehydrated often simply because it's so difficult for them to get to the bathroom. So there's a big problem with dehydration. The a big problem in the current environment with the pandemic, people are going outside less. I think we're trying to do 
you know, to make up for that with tele-rehab. And I think tele-rehab is solved the problem somewhat, but with people spending more and more time in their houses, I have a huge worry that once we do start getting outside again, the unevenness of the terrain, the having to do more steps and curbs, having to deal with more people in the environment is going to be a big challenge. Mm-hmm. One really big thing is I have many patients who say to me, well, I don't exercise anymore because the insurance company isn't paying for physical therapy anymore. And I say to them, well, why, why do you need a physical therapist to exercise? Every single one of my patients has a home program. And I tell them, I expect you to do this program every single day. Think of this like medication. You know, you wouldn't say, well, I don't feel like taking my medication today. I'll only do it twice a week, even though my doctor told me to do it every day. For the exercise program to be effective, it requires a certain amount of dosage, practice, Mm -hmm. volume. And I really believe that most of our patients don't get the full benefit of what we can offer simply because they don't practice enough. Yeah, and And it's hard. I mean, it is totally, it's hard for people, but I think it's part of our jobs is really figuring out how do we get you to do this in a way that is sustainable for you? Because that's what it needs to be, right? Just like that medication. You don't have the doctor or the nurse standing there every day giving you that medication. You shouldn't need me standing there every day to help you do these exercises. But it's hard. I mean, it's hard for all of us that that activation energy, right? Right. But I I, want to echo your point that I think a lot of this is up to us. I think we have to take responsibility. If our patients are not exercising enough, we have to take some responsibility for that. If it means calling our patients every day or having something in line to do it, having a electronic reminder every day. But I think that's something we should explore more because there's zero doubt in my mind that we can get profound changes in our patients with exercise. But if they're not doing the exercise, they're, they're simply not going to get the benefit. So I think right. it's incumbent upon our profession to try to find a way to get our patients to exercise at that optimal volume. Right. I think they're really, it's very, very similar to me to a patient simply not taking all their medication and wondering why they're not getting better. Right. Yeah. No, that's a great analogy. So Herb, I think this has been a great conversation. I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. I want to thank you very much. One of the things that we like to do when we talk to folks is ask them what they do when they're not working. One of the difficult things now for folks is that we're living in this time of COVID when a lot of the things that we like to do, we can't do. And then I understand for you, having dealt with some injury lately, that maybe you have even more of that than the normal person out there, but we're still curious. So what do you like to do maybe pre-COVID, pre-injury? Sure. Well, the center of my life is my family. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky enough to be married to a wonderful woman who's a physician, a specialist in women's health. And we spend a lot of time talking about our work and helping each other with our work. I have two wonderful children, my older one, Matthew, my younger one, Min. And as far as I'm concerned, the sun rises and sets on them. And they've been a source of incredible learning and happiness for me. I'm, I'm one of those people who almost went to cooking school, culinary school instead of PT school. Wow. I'm very glad I didn't because I think PT is an amazing profession. Mm-hmm. But one of the nice things is 
I have a, fa- a very hungry family who loves for me to cook for them. So that's a big passion of mine. Before I busted up my knee, I definitely went for the yuck factor. I tried to push myself hard in biking and running and weight training and anything else I could. And outside of that, my my work as a as a physical therapist, um, my patients mean a lot to me. My students mean a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I am able to do in between COVID and my knee injury is I'm still writing a lot and trying to get papers published and trying to get information out there. Yeah, great. Well, and this is one avenue to do that. So we're so glad that you were able to join us for this podcast. I'm very grateful to be given the opportunity. I truly appreciate it. Special thanks for our guest today, Herb Herpatkin. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. Special thank you to our volunteers, Sarah Crandall, Adriana Carey, and Mira Pierce. This podcast was edited by Sarah Crandall. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. We also always have um, bloopers. I'm going to go old school here and go back to the Google Drive, which is probably not allowed, but no one will know. We're recording so everyone will know. (laughs) My secret is out of the bag. (laughs) <laughs> I use Google out Drive. Of the box. <laughs> I'm I'm very comfortable with Google Drive. I've never heard of Box, and usually, I when I have electronic questions, I just ask my kids to take care of it. That's okay. I'll just say it was the pain medication from a few days ago. There you go. Okay. Yes. Okay. Got the thumbs up. Nice. Double thumbs up from Doctor Paget. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And you could just tell me when to shut up here, but I'll just keep going.